Welcome to From Embers to Excellence, a podcast that explores the many facets of leadership from the perspectives of some amazing people. We discuss the triumphs and failures that have shaped our lives and our leadership philosophies. It isn't whether we fail that defines us, but when we do fail, how do we respond? Leaders dust off the ashes and use their failures as fuel to work harder and as lessons to come back wiser and stronger, more resilient, more determined, and more committed to excellence. And now, here is your host, Dave Hollenbach. Today's guest is Stuart Cody. He has a Master's of Health Science in Rehabilitation uh, Counseling from University of Florida and is a licensed mental health counselor in Central Florida. He is a rehabilitation mental health counselor providing EMDR and uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, he practices in vocational rehabilitation as well. He works with a variety of PTSD, chronic pain, addictions, stress, anxiety. Uh, additionally, he works with employee assistance programs, um, disabled and career transition clients. He has experience in vocational expert testimony uh, services and has over 25 years of experience in mental health counseling. You specialize in, in EMDR and in cognitive behavioral therapy. What, what is EMDR? Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, EMDR is, the letters stand for eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. And it forms the basis for a well-researched and validated therapy um, for trauma, for survivors of trauma. Um, its research stands out as very effective with PTSD, but we've also found that it's effective with chronic pain, uh, daily stress, depression, a whole variety is also addictions to a certain degree. So it's a very versatile therapy. Um, well-researched and very effective. Okay. Um, so today we're talking about your experience with public safety professionals, cops and firefighters, uh, particularly, um, typically you see them uh, to treat them for PTSD, correct? Yes. So can we talk a little bit about what PTSD is? and uh, maybe the causes and effects of, of that in those occupations. Sure, uh, I've found it's helpful to understand PTSD instead of just defining it. Let's talk about how it comes about and then we can understand its effects much better. Um, one of the things when we work with individuals who have been exposed to traumatic events, and traumatic events can vary from individual to individual depending on what they, their past experience has been. But they are disruptive enough to where they, the trauma is so great, whether it's I'm in a car accident, I'm in a war, um, I've seen, I'm dealing with a family member who's ill and all of a sudden I'm on a call with someone who looks in the same situation and it just triggers that to where I feel overwhelmed. My natural, my mind and my body's natural ability to process stress gets overwhelmed. And when that occurs, then I can have the elements of PTSD. 
this lingering memory or this lingering experience that gets triggered over and over again, that whenever it's triggered, it floods back on you or myself or anybody at such an intensity level and so raw that it almost feels like you're back in the original scene. And when that happens, it's very, very disruptive to your ability to function. It's disruptive in that moment, it's scary, and it lingers, and you start to wonder, what's going on with me? So PTSD is basically this isolated experience that when it's triggered, it just floods back, and it feels like you almost feel like you're overwhelmed by the variety of emotions, body sensations, and cognitions that flood with it. In your experience, how is PTSD a singular event, maybe a singular traumatic event, but that kind of, that tends to lend itself to maybe physical trauma, um, maybe sexual trauma, or trauma experienced in, in war, or maybe a violent interaction, uh, you know, experienced by a law enforcement officer when they're on a call, but I, I believe that it, it may be a little bit different for individuals in the fire service where it's more of a cumulative effect? Can you, can you speak to that a little Absolutely. bit? Absolutely. And it's a great question. If we were to use shop talk, you know, or therapist talk, we you can classify traumas into two types. There's big T trauma, much like you just said, a single event or a very large event, a big trauma that, that sets this in motion. But we also have what we refer to sometimes as small t traumas, which is a repeated exposure to a trauma. That fits very well with a lot of what first responders may see, is that I'm exposed to these smaller traumas, but I'm repeatedly exposed to them. I'm triggering them up. And over time, they have a wear on me. It happens sometimes with survivors of uh, childhood sexual abuse or emotional abuse from childhood also. It's this repeated trauma over and over again that builds up, it triggers over and over again. So yes, um, they both result in the same type of functional impact, but uh, we just differentiate them from, can we, other terms might be called single complex trauma or single trauma incident. But it, we try to differentiate where but the treatment and the outcome and focus is the same, but they can come from both, uh, both types of trauma. So in, I mean, this is, there's gotta be a, a, a ton of research that goes into really nailing down the most effective treatments for something so broad. How, how do you continue to learn in order to stay ahead of the curve in, in such a broad field? Uh, the primary way is that we always want to stay up on the research and the elements. Um, so myself, personally, I engage, I'm pretty ferocious in my reading. I'm always reading or picking up audio books uh, on it to gain new ideas, primarily because they help in day-to-day -day practice. Oh, there's a new angle. There's a new technique. Uh, there's seminars, professional associations, um, EMT. For example, EMDR has EMDR-IA, Air National Association, which advocates and does a lot of research. 
Um, EMDR has been recognized by the Veterans Administration, by the uh, American Psychiatric Association, Psychological. There's research there you keep up with. So we, we read, we go to seminars, but the primary thing is also practice. You know, I, I want to read, I want to pick up ideas, and I want to conform my practice to my needs of my individual clients as well as my own personality so I can create that connection. And um, I think to stay up on this, you almost have to have a hunger to want to get better and to learn more. Very applicable in just about every occupation. I think so. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there are multiple treatments for PTSD. There's immersion therapy, there's hypnotherapy, co uh, logotherapy, um, cognitive uh, behavioral, what is it? Yeah. Cognitive behavioral therapy. Okay. And uh, I was wondering if you could, your specialty is EMDR, correct? Yes. So can we talk a little bit about that, uh, the, the mechanics of it? Uh, the the theory the the research the effectiveness that you've experienced and maybe how it differs from the different therapies that that you're aware of sure I'd be happy to and what I'd like to start out is all those therapies you mentioned are effective they all have effectiveness to them and in fact I use a, several elements from each of those areas in some of the EMDR I do. My primary focus is EMDR. So um, it's not a matter of one is over, it's just they each have a different emphasis of how they come at the problem, okay? So with the EMDR, it sits on this model called the Adaptive Info Information Processing Model. And in the simplest terms, um, I often will explain as, We've known for centuries that if we cut ourselves, if we just keep it clean, the body has a mechanism to heal itself. And that mechanism is, while we didn't understand the mechanism until relatively recently, <laughs> that mechanism we've known about for centuries. And it just heals itself, takes care of it. Well, the mind has a similar mechanism for dealing with trauma. We deal with stresses and trauma every single day. And why is it that we don't get overwhelmed by those? Um, the idea is that because the mind processes out those stressors, hangs on to the bits of information we need, gets rid of the parts we don't need, and integrates them, okay? It has an adaptive process. But if this adaptive process is overwhelmed because of a, either a big trauma or a series of small traumas, and it doesn't play out, it would be similar to how my cut would heal if it's too deep and I didn't get stitches. You know, it's going to be disruptive. And um, so EMDR, the idea behind EMDR is we want to use this tech, these techniques to reactivate that process, to kind of get out of the way and let the mind and the body do what they need to do. Where the therapist comes in is we help develop what target memories or what target issues do we want to focus on. How are those playing out in our thoughts and our feelings and our body sensation with all the relevant information we have available? And then activate that process in a targeted way so that the mind begins making those adaptive connections. 
And whatever the trauma was, at the end, we want that trauma to be part of your story, no longer driving big chunks of your story like it does when it hijacks. One of the examples um, that we've discussed is the, the latter. Yes. Can you talk about that for a minute? The latter is the autonomic, I call it the autonomic ladder. Uh, it comes from polyvagal theory. And polyvagal theory was actually discovered relatively recently, um, but it's, it's a physiological underlying, which underlies all branches of therapy. And it's applicable to psychodynamics, cognitive behavioral, EMDR, immersion therapy. It underlies, it fits with everything. It helps us explain many and many of our experiences. And basically the autonomic ladder says that our nervous systems as an adaptive function is always looking for two types of information, our autonomic nervous system. Are we in a safe environment or are we in a dangerous environment? And are we mobilize a response depending on the feedback that we get, okay? And that response will follow one of three pathways. And that's, well, the ladder is a metaphor to represent those pathways. At the top of the ladder is what we call the ventral vagal pathway or the social engagement pathway. When we feel safe, when we're getting cues of safety, then our physiological systems are all in balance, where energy seems to be balanced. We, we use our energy to connect to other people. This is where we experience joy, curiosity, a lot of these feelings. But what happens when we get cues of danger, whether that cue might be a look on somebody's face or a tone of voice or a bear jumping out at me, a bus about to hit me. I can drop down my ladder into the sympathetic branch, activate the sympathetic branch, and my body mobilizes into a fight or flight response. So what happens there? Well, my heartbeat increases, my breathing changes, my hormones get released, blood goes to my arms and my legs, my digestion slows way down, my cognitive processing even slows down because my body is in a state of survival mode, okay? And if all that doesn't work, I could potentially drop to what's called the bottom of the ladder or the dorsal vagal response. And that's where I just kind of shut down. I freeze. I try to disappear. I try to make myself smaller because I'm overwhelmed. And I feel depression and overwhelmed in these areas. So it begins to teach us how to link all these various components, thoughts, feelings, body sensations into a coherent narrative so that we have a framework to discuss them and to strategize and understand how to interact with them. And I found that's a very helpful metaphor for helping people understand why EMDR or why immersion therapy or why cognitive behavioral are helpful. Related to that, that ladder the, uh, in the polyvagal theory, can you relate the ladder and the polyvagal theory to what first responders and law enforcement may experience when they're engaged in, in a, a stressful situation. Um, a <clears throat> an incident where it's seemingly out of control and, and how that is different than maybe, uh, you know, your average citizen that may experience uh, 
you know, maybe it's somebody on that very same incident, just they don't have the same training as law enforcement. Absolutely. The latter is a perfect example to illustrate that. So, and it also helps us understand where trauma comes in, what trauma is different. Firefighters, first responders, police officers, military personnel go through an extensive amount of training. Um, and so we start to ask ourselves, why when a fire truck rolls up on a chaotic scene, maybe a multi-car accident, multiple people need help, there's bodies, there's fires, there's chaos, okay? Now, one of the things we would understand from the latter is when you roll up on that scene, your nervous system is going to pick up all those cues of danger naturally. So you will mobilize with energy. You will activate that sympathetic branch, kind of dropping down that ladder, right? You will mobilize with a lot of energy to respond. But why is it that in that moment you don't get hijacked and just go into this overwhelmed response there? Why is it you can still activate and be very effective and function there? And that's because you keep a foot, what I call a foothold in safety. You still have a foothold at the top of the ladder because your training, your equipment, your fire crew all act as a foothold in safety. I know what's going on. I still feel safe. So I can mobilize with a lot of energy and respond to this chaos. But because I have a foothold in safety, I don't get overwhelmed and hijacked and go into a very predictable response. I'm very flexible in my response. And that's what happens. Now, let's say a bystander is there and they're just overwhelmed. They don't have that foothold in safety. It can be very traumatic for them, okay? Or it could be a particular firefighter that day. And in interacting in that scene, there's a trigger that is just close enough to, oh my God, I just saw my mother's face on this person because I'm dealing with a huge trauma with my mother right now. And now all of a sudden I get hijacked. I lose that foothold in safety. And you can see it's PTSD is not due to a character flaw. It's not due to a weakness. Every single one of us have the potential to have these experiences. It's related to the uniqueness of that individual and their past experiences and the chaos and the trauma they're experiencing right there and whether you get hijacked and lose that foothold in safety or whether you're able to maintain it. So the latter is very helpful to help us understand why we can have multiple different responses in a setting. But when we lose that foothold in safety, when we lose that ability to feel safe inside our body while we're in this hijacked experience, that then it's all bets are off. So one thing that... Um... <clears throat> strikes me as very interesting is there, especially with today's climate, with um, the, the incidents of law enforcement officers um, seemingly targeting African-American males or females, these events, whether it's really profound racism, prejudice, that sort of thing, or if it's just, you know, an individual's socialization, their, their upbringing, their, their personal life experience. But 
also their experience on the job, how that can trigger almost like reflex actions and their decision making isn't exactly where it should be. And, you know, they may respond to an event inappropriately because, and I'm not saying this is every instance, but it, it, I would imagine it plays a role in some of the instances where they may see a look or recognize certain body language in somebody that they're uh, addressing on an incident and a sudden movement or a look or whatever can trigger, you know, that, that fight or flight response where their self-defense kicks in kicks in and they take action using lethal force. It is, um, we can look at that incident through the lens of the ladder and understand a few more of the dynamics and get some clues of how we might want to respond to it. And these aren't every situation's the same, but let's take a moment and understand there are times that if, if our bodies respond according to that ladder, for an adaptive reason, that means it kind of keeps us alive, right? So there are times when I want my body to get hijacked by that fight or flight response. If I'm in the woods and a bear comes out chasing me, I want my body to be hijacked by that fight or flight response. I want my cognitive thinking to slow way down and I want to run like crazy, right? If I'm about to hit by a bus, I want my body to respond that way, right? But it's not as helpful if my body's responding that way every time somebody gives me a certain look with their face or every time I hear a tone of voice a certain way. My, every time my wife says something in a certain tone of voice, boom, I go into fight or flight. That's not very helpful now, is it? So this can become helpful. You go, what if we can help people understand better? about how to maintain a foothold in safety, what are their triggers, what's happening, then we have the, they have the ability to slow that fight or flight hijacking, okay? I might get activated, but if I still feel safe, I'm not hijacked by it, right? And so it starts to give us clues of, yes, we wanna do that, but we also, you know, there's also people have to understand that this isn't a one-on-one -on -one thing. There's certain cues that the other person's nervous system's given off that your nervous system's picking up and vice versa. And so, yeah, they can escalate very easily, but it does help us understand why mistakes happen. And we want things to slow down. Sometimes, yeah, it's due to racism. Sometimes it's due to a fear that I've been in this situation before and this turned out bad. And and neither one of those are good outcomes. We don't want to advocate for either one. We want to minimize both of those as right. much as we can. And so there's potentially things to learn there. But that also leads me to one other area that I think is important. And I think being a first responder, you can speak to this very well. Think about what we learned growing up. We're taught growing up that it's important to be successful. It's important to achieve things. Uh, it's important to work hard and to set yourself apart. And those are all good things. I'm not saying those are bad things. 
we're also taught what to do. We get first aid classes and we get taught how to handle um, dangerous situations and we get taught how, to, you know, all sorts of things like this, right? But we're not taught how to deal with negative emotions, with fear, with anxiety, with frustration, with nervousness, right? Normally it's like, I'll just suck it up. You know, the messages we get there are go handle that by yourself or suck it up or it'll go away over time, just give it time. So we just, we don't learn. So we, we push that stuff away, we hide it. And that feeds into these areas here as well. Uh, guess what? Now I'm, a, I'm in a life or potentially life or death situation. And I know this, when I feel this feeling that this means major danger and I shouldn't feel it and I react. So, so part of that is learned and, and we can unlearn that. We don't have to change our whole system, but it's, we have to make it okay for people to say, okay, we can also learn better strategies, how to deal with these feelings, how to deal with these negative experiences. Quit wasting our time saying, I'll never feel a negative feeling. Just accept the fact that it's part of life and learn how to better relate to it. When it comes to law enforcement, I know that, that a lot of my counterparts in law enforcement, they, they have backgrounds uh, in the military. They're, they're veterans. They've spent time uh, in Iraq, Afghanistan, they've seen combat, they come over, they go to, to the police academy, they get their law enforcement credentials, and they um, take an oath to, to serve and protect, and they are carrying baggage from their experience in the military a lot of times. I know that there is a stigma in in public safety with with seeking with seeking help with seeking treatment uh, to improve one's mental health, and I think that that can play a role <clears throat> in poor decision making processes when exposed to stressful situations uh, when, when responding to, uh, to calls for service. Now, it, it's something that, that I've thought a lot about, and, and I, can't, I can't help but feel that exposure to this type of education could be so beneficial to, to law enforcement officers and, and fire rescue employees, um, just in understanding what happens in, in our minds and our physiology uh, when, when placed in these situations. And, and I was just wondering, I'm sure that you're aware of that, that stigma. What are maybe some things that, um, that you could tell those listening, you know, maybe some advice to overcome that stigma or maybe feel more comfortable in seeking assistance? In my experience, what other first responders have taught me through my experience working with them and what I share with people a lot is this idea 
it's a little counterintuitive to what we learn in our culture. Okay, but when we are able to embrace it, it makes a huge difference. Is this idea, if we can come to be comfortable with this idea that negative feelings are just a natural part of life. That means anxiety, depression, frustration, fear. They are a part of life. Now, when they're huge, they're a problem. But the fact that they show up from time to time is a natural part of life. And if we can accept that they're a natural part of life, then we can start to break this idea that we're taught that if you're okay, you won't have those feelings. Whenever I feel this feeling, that means I did something wrong or I'm broken, I'm weak. And that's what interferes with people's ability to seek help or to learn these things. Because we're naturally taught that, no, you solve that and you get done and you don't ever feel it again. And so that way I call it a blocking belief. It forms a blocking belief to anything we want to do. As soon as that feeling shows up, it means, oh, I'm weak or I'm broken. So I'll either have to hide it, bury it, or solve it. And none of those three strategies work very well <laughs> in the long run. The better strategy is how can I relate to it in a way that it doesn't last very long, you know? And so when we are able to say, I can feel these negative feelings and not be broken. It doesn't mean I'm broken. Then it opens us up to remain that it keeps that foothold in safety. Remember, that's the thing. It keeps a foothold in safety. And when I feel safe, my vision is much wider. My choices are much better. My options are much better. So if I had to implant any idea is I would encourage people to play with this idea that just because I experience a negative feeling, it doesn't mean I'm broken. It doesn't mean I failed. It doesn't mean that I'm weak. It means you're a normal human being. And all you do is when you interact with a counselor or you interact with somebody else is you're just, you've decided I want to learn a new way to relate to this feeling rather than run away from it. Now, one thing that uh, I, I think is interesting about EMDR uh, as, a, as opposed to talk therapy with talk therapy, and I think that's what uh, a lot of first responders steer away from because, you know, their idea of therapy is, okay, I got to get all touchy-feely and express my emotions, you know, how I'm sad. I'm going to, you know, sit there and they're going to expect me to cry about whatever. Now, with EMDR, it's quite a bit different than, than talk therapy. Quite a bit. And, and so... <clears throat> can you can you go into the mechanics of EMDR, like the, the process uh, and, and how that works? Sure. So in EMDR, it, it's, it's protocol-based therapy. So it follows a set procedure. But effectively, once you and the counselor establish some rapport, some trust between each other, and you identify the areas that are most difficult, and whether those areas are in the past or in the present, it doesn't really matter. Once you identify that, then in the EMDR, we'll start to get a feel for information about that experience. You know, what's the, what image represents that experience? What thoughts represent that experience? What negative beliefs are associated with it? What feelings go along with it? What body sensations? How does it show up in your body when you think about it? We get all these ratings. And we start to get a feel for how it's playing out, okay? 
Then in EMDR, we introduce bilateral stimulation. Bilateral stimulation is either tracking movements with your eyes, holding buzzers, going back and forth between the hands, hearing sounds back and forth. Now, bilateral stim, even though we don't know exactly the physiological reason why it works, the research shows it works really, really well, is this bilateral stim seems to act to occupy, your brain has to pay attention to that bilateral stim. That's an odd stimulation. So part of your brain's paying attention to that while we have you focus on the trauma. And so your brain can't fully focus on the trauma because part of it's take up, taken up by this. So it tends not to activate the trauma as much. And then the therapist and you kind of get out of the way. And the therapist will instruct you whatever thoughts, feelings, or emotions come up. I'm going to just focus on this target. I'm going to do some stims. I'm going to stop it. I'm going to say, what do you notice? And whatever comes up, doesn't matter. Oh, I thought about this, or I felt this in my body, or I had this feeling pop up. Okay, go with that. We turn the stim back on. You start focusing on that. And we start getting out of the way. And your mind and your body are kind of directly interacting with that target. And it speeds things up greatly, okay? Now, I can activate a lot of emotions. So before we do all this, we will build some resources for you to calm the body down just in case you feel overwhelmed. But the fact that we kind of get out of the way and let the mind and the body naturally do what they would do if the trauma hadn't interfered with it speeds things up tremendously. And, um, and the other nice thing about it is as a therapist, I don't even need to know the details of your trauma. I don't need you to tell me every single detail. All I need you to do is be willing to, to focus on it for a, a brief time for it to work. And then all of a sudden over, your mind is making all sorts of connections that it couldn't make before. It's linking parts of those experiences with adaptive memories. And the next thing you know, we check back in and the intensity of those disturbances start to go down. And now all of a sudden we know the processing is being affected. So that's EMDR, that's a very super brief introduction to what EMDR is, but it's the idea of activating this natural ability to process information, getting out of the way, and just helping shape the way it moves. And if you run into a stuck point, then periodically asking a question in a different way or looking at it in a different way. Um, cognitive behavioral and talk therapy are very effective but they tend to take a little bit longer because we have to get through all these verbal defense barriers to get to the meat where the EMDR tends to get you there a lot quicker. It's, uh, it's pretty incredible how, how the mind works. And it's, it's really interesting. Um, <clears throat> right now in, in your role as, as a counselor, um, as an EMDR practitioner, what's the, what's the biggest challenge that, uh, that you face right now and how are you going to overcome it? Probably the biggest challenge is, uh, for most, it's part of the challenge is always the business side of it. 
<laughs> you know, it is, you, you are doing this to make a living to kind of live. So you have to have the business elements of it, the referrals coming in and the cash flow and those, those take part of your time. Um, having um, other practitioners that you can talk to and troubleshoot with so you're not isolated, you know, that's part of the, the challenge to do it. Um, those I would say, and of course, making time to continually update your knowledge, continually grow your skill base because everything is mediated through your ability to relate to another person, to understand that person, to form a connection. That's, that's the medium for everything to happen. And, and so you want your skill set so you can have a variety of ways to relate to other people and to invest in them. Um, so those are really probably the three, three biggest challenges is just the administrative, the logistical side of it. Once you're in with the client, it's energizing in a way. I mean, you, I, can, I can look at my schedule and say, oh, I got all, I got all these clients. Oh, it's going to be a tough day. It's, you know, that's a lot of work. But what's amazing is once you're one-on-one with a person and you're fully present and you commit to connecting with them, it's energizing. That part's energizing. But you also have to be prepared that there might be things they say that are that trigger a fear inside of you. And you have to be willing to notice that. It's not a one-way street where, hey, I'm teach you how to be good. I'm all good over here. I have to be willing to know that I can get scared in there too. That that brings me to to a question, uh, you know, a thought that I that I had. Uh, in your role you meet people from all walks of life who've experienced varying degrees of trauma. And I'm sure that it can take its toll listening, uh, listening to the evils that people perpetrate on one another. But even through all of that, I'm sure that there are some beautiful experiences that, that find their way through all of that pain what what has inspired you most as a clinician it, it's what i mentioned earlier it's that feeling of connection when when you're able to initially meet somebody and you feel the resistance you feel the nervousness i mean that's what we were talking about with the ladder right you can't your nervous system their nervous system you cannot help but be aware of the tension right the nervousness to be able to sit with that nervousness, to be able to just say, okay, this is part of it. It's going to be uncomfortable and that's okay. It doesn't mean anything's broken. And then to establish a connection and feel that tension go down, that's where it's rewarding. Because we can think about that all day. Wow, that's a neat idea. That feels great. But it's when I can think about it and feel it in my body together that's when it becomes real. And I think that's what keeps you going. Yeah, there are days where it's sad. And, the, and, and you have to live a little bit of what you preach. <laughs> you have to use some of the techniques. You have to use some of the ability to let things go. Um, but that real connection, that real energy that we're really designed for is more than carries the day, I think, for the negatives. More than outweighs the negatives. More what I was 
looking for is maybe in your experience, because I'm sure, I'm, I'm positive that somebody is going to hear this and they're struggling with, with some of their own trauma. And with your vast experience with people, I'm sure that you've come in contact with somebody that has just had some horrific experiences that, that you were able to help them. And so in that sense, I would imagine that that, that relationship, that success would serve as, as quite the inspiration. You know, I know you can't really share specifics or, you know, anything like that, but I, I would imagine there's got to be something that stands out in your mind that maybe you'd be able oh, to share. There's one that's huge. And I, I, um, I had been practicing counseling primarily in cognitive behavioral and a little bit of mindfulness space and some different approaches. And those are great. Um, but I'd recently been trained in EMDR, recently completed my training in that and started to practice with EMDR. So it was relatively early into my practice with that. And I had a client who she was traumatized. And it took a while building rapport and processing out some trauma that she dealt with as a child. But I came to find out over time, over a short period of time when we developed that relationship, that she had full-blown disassociative identity disorder, or what we would used to call multiple personalities. And I had, because we developed a connection, I saw a couple of them come out in session. And it's scary, <laughs> I can tell you right now. It freaks you out. Um, I was like, oh my God, am I skilled enough for this? Can I do this? Did I open a can of worms? Um, and through EMDR, through the training, I just sat with it. I was like, okay, well, right now I don't want to do any more damage, so I'm just going to be here with her. And, and, and we were, I was able to develop a little bit of comfort and actually interact with those personalities and get them to interact. And, and it turned into being one of the most rewarding experiences and solidified a lot of my beliefs in the value of this therapy from that one experience. But I, I have to tell you, in the moment, oh my, I almost felt overwhelmed. I did feel overwhelmed <laughs> and luckily, luckily I just stayed with it. I maintained a connection instead of pulling away, which is kind of what part of my body was screaming to do. So yes, I mean, there are times when you're going to hear something or see something of a magnitude that you were not prepared for. And I'm sure I have more of those types of experiences in my future. You know, they're not all in my past, but, um, but yeah, those are, those are neat experiences. You know, it's, it, you just, you come out of them. Um, and sometimes when you come out on the good side, they're, they're just, um, they set you on a path. And that brings me to the next question. Um, and this is, if you're, if you're willing to talk about it, um, one of the best ways that I've found for me personally to learn is uh, through my failures mistakes that I've made um, that 
And, and the bigger the mistake, it seems the more valuable the lesson. <laughs> if you're willing to share maybe a, a profound failure or mistake that has kind of shaped uh, your life and for the better, um, but how you overcame that and, and maybe just through telling this story, it could uh, help others not make the, the same decisions? Um, you know, I, I certainly, I have a lot of mistakes in my past. And like I said, I probably have quite a few left in my future. Um, and in answering that, I have a couple of different ideas. One is the way I live with mistakes day to day right now. Um, I'm certainly not a perfect counselor and far from it. And I just, I muddle through it and do the best I can and try to connect people and help them. But I can find, even in my sessions, there are sessions where I'll meet some people and I can make a connection and it's great. I meet some people and it's kind of a little rough at front because I'm not connecting. I'm maybe not hearing them or I'm not doing, you know, I'm not there enough to make that connection. And, or I, or I, I have an idea and I go, hey, I think I'll go this way and I go that way and it really wasn't what they were talking about. And I can verbal, I can see them lose connection with me. I can feel the tension increase in the room. And then the next thing you know, they don't show back up. They don't come in anymore or, or they come in and you have to kind of repair that rift you create. So, so it's almost like, I, it's, it's a great day if I don't have a single one of those instances where, you know, but the willingness, but what I've learned from it is to stay with it, stay with it, uh, expect to make mistakes and be willing to sit with that discomfort or be present with it because it doesn't last very long and you have a chance to repair it, you know. So those are, that's it on the small day-to-day -day basis. I had to be com comfortable with the fact that I'm going to screw up. I had to let go of this expert, perfect person mentality and realize it's a team effort. Um, but on, on a probably a little bigger scale was the fact that I never finished the PhD. You know, um, I let that one beat me up for a lot of years. Um, early in the career, you know, I did, I was all with dissertation, did everything I needed to do to finish it. I had already been working by the time I did that, and I just lost my focus. I don't know what happened, to be honest with you. I just couldn't get myself over that hump. And it struggled and struggled and couldn't get started, couldn't get started. Finally made a decision to let it go. Um, but then for years, many, many years after that, I rationalized the heck out. Like, well, I didn't really need it. I'm not sure it wouldn't make me any more money. It didn't mean I didn't know anymore. I did everything, and I would kind of uncomfortable over time. Why didn't you finish your PhD? Wait. Um, and finally, I just had to go, you know, I didn't finish it because I just didn't. They, I, I screwed up. I lost focus. I didn't know why I was doing it. I don't know why. I just didn't do it. But once I became, I sat with it, I became comfortable with it, it just became part of my story and no longer something I had to hide from. You know, no longer something I had to be ashamed of. You know, because who knows, maybe part of the reason I get the PhD was because I, I could show the world how much more I love myself and how much, you know, and there's a lot of great PhDs out there. Don't get me wrong. They're great. But I had to finally come to the fact that I can be good at what I do without that. And that's okay. You know, 
Um, but it didn't come right off the bat. I struggled for years, you know, and, and I have to say probably until I fully devoted myself to counseling and learning my craft and screwing up left and right and still finding a way to make something good out of that, that I finally was able to put that away. Do you have any advice for young firefighters, young fire officers or law enforcement officers uh, with regard to mental health? It's kind of twofold. One is I'd remind them they don't, they don't carry the burden of having to change the world or change people's minds or their opinions. So if you hear the old school, suck it up, buttercup, you don't have to fight it, <laughs> right? But you also don't have to own it, you know? You're, I encourage young firefighters, police officers, just experiment. Experiment with feeling the range of feelings go with the job. Experiment with allowing yourself, today maybe I don't wanna feel this. Tomorrow, oh, okay, I'm in a better place, so I'll let myself feel sad or I'll let myself feel scared. And notice, just notice what's happening when you try those different strategies. And if you can get comfortable with that, you might find it's a lot easier to realize I can feel this without, like I said earlier, without feeling like I'm broken. And therefore, if I need a little shot in the arm, I go get a shot in the arm because it doesn't mean I'm screwed up. Is there anything that, that I should ask you that I just don't know enough to, to ask? Um, nothing that comes to mind. Um, who knows, maybe in a day I'll go, God, why didn't I ask, why didn't I think of that? But, but no, hopefully, you know, I don't know. Um, I hope I answered the questions in a way. I didn't get sidetracked by my own thoughts. <laughs> I didn't get sidetracked by getting so excited that I wound up not answering the questions. But, um, but no, I think we, we've touched on a lot and hopefully I got, if anything else, I got the idea across. The main idea for me that I've learned that's been valuable in working with people and myself is that it's okay to have negative experiences. It's okay to have negative feelings. And when I quit fighting them, they don't last nearly as long. And I find that I start to like myself a lot better. And if that idea can come across in any of the stuff we've talked about, then then um, I feel like I've been successful in communicating my passion. Absolutely. I, I think this has been very eye-opening and extremely informative. I, I can't thank you enough for sharing so much with me today, allowing me to interview you. And so I, I really think that whoever chooses to listen to this is going to get a lot out of it. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. That's very kind, and, and I, I appreciate the opportunity because um, it, it's taken me later in life, but I have kind of found a passion, and it's nice to have a little energy. Again. <laughs> thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of From Embers to Excellence. Please visit hallenbockleadership.com for additional content. Dave's goal is to add value to as many people as possible. So if he can be of any assistance to you or someone you know, please connect with him via email or on one of his social media accounts linked on the homepage of his website.
Remember, our failures don't define us unless we let them. And the only true measure of a leader is the success of their team.